This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Ryan's Thompson Fund, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today is part of our ongoing series about parenting kids on the autism spectrum. We've been speaking to experts on the subject who've let us know what it's like to live with autism on the inside. And today I'm going to be speaking with Susan Levin about her experience as the mom of an 11-year-old boy. Susan Levin is a writer, lecturer, and coach to families of children on the autism spectrum. Despite two graduate degrees, Susan considers her most essential education to be the experience of parenting her son, Benjamin, who was diagnosed with autism at five years old. Ben is now 11, and she considers him to have emerged from autism. She describes him as an interactive, expressive, and connected 11-year-old in her new book, Discovering Benjamin, A Family's Journey Out of Autism, which will be published this fall. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Susan. Thanks, Anne. Great to be here. So I'd like to start with actually hearing a passage from your book. If you might read me a story about a little bit about how you, it really first kind of broke into your world that something was not right. Yeah, so this is a story from uh, when Ben was a toddler and we were seeing um, a failure to connect with other toddlers as well as with ourselves and that had been going on for some time. And um, so here's, here's an excerpt from that period of time when we were really starting to see it. I hung up the phone and returned to the living room. I saw my infant daughter, Alina, asleep in her bassinet and smiled. But wait, where was Ben, my toddler? He had been with Alina in the living room just moments before. How long had I been on the phone? Ben? I called out, hopefully. No answer. I searched the first floor. My heart began to pound. Ben, Ben? Ben, Ben? Ben, honey, where are you, sweetheart? I could hear the anxiety in my voice. I knew my hollering was useless. Ben never answered, even when he was right in front of me. But I shouted my desperation ahead of me as I ran up the stairs. Ben! I scanned his room, then ours, and the bathrooms. He was nowhere. I ran downstairs through the kitchen and into the living room to check on Lena, who was still asleep, blissfully unaware of her mother's panic. Without pause, I yelled outside in the front yard, Benjamin, where are you? Ben, Ben. Answer, Mommy. By now I was crying, tears streaming down my face. I was in a state of utter terror, my mind filled with horrible visions of children stolen away from right under their parents' noses, terrible images of kidnappers and perpetrators and everything I'd ever seen on television. I raced around to the back of the house. He wasn't there. I ran back inside, called the police, and then called my husband. I ran out into the front yard again. I screamed Ben's name over and over again. No one came. I couldn't breathe. I felt as if my world was ending. Suddenly, I saw him. He was in the next-door neighbor's yard, no more than a few hundred feet away. He had sneaked through the fence into their yard and was playing happily on their slide. He had been there the whole time, deaf to my screams, insensible to my hysterical, sobbing pleas, oblivious to all but himself and his own experience. My relief was intense, but so too was my rage. How could he have put me through that? Why didn't he respond to my cries? Didn't he care that his own mother was in pain? 
How could he ignore me that way? Then I began to berate myself. How could I have let him get outside? What if he had really been taken from me? What kind of mother was I? It took me years to discover that I was asking the wrong questions. Ben's behavior wasn't about me. He wasn't ignoring me. The problem was not in me. It took us several more years of pain, turmoil, and confusion to finally understand. Ben had autism. Susan, that is such an intense story. I think if if mothers haven't experienced that, they've experienced it in their dreams. Only not, not usually for this reason, that he, as you put it, I was struck by what you read, that he was insensible to everything but his own experience, or sort of his own world. And is that how you understand that? Because I, when I hear that story, I'm thinking, oh, okay, is this like a sensory issue? He's shutting out sound? Or is it that he's so deeply engaged with what he is doing? How, how do you understand that now? That's a wonderful question. You know, um, I think it's probably a combination of a lot of different factors. And every child is also unique. Um, so it's really hard to sort of analyze a child um, in this situation. I think many children ignore their parents <laughs> when they're having fun. <laughs> and that kind of goes with the territory, especially, well, I think everybody, in fact. Um, but I think there's when you see a pattern occurring where there's this consistent, um, not even seeming to be ignoring, but actually not even seeming to hear. And in fact, we thought Ben had a um, hearing loss. <laughs> well, right. That's, we had him tested. And, of course and you did. That wasn't the issue. It really seemed to be just that he was not conscious of me. Um, and I, you know, and one of the things that I stopped doing at a certain point along our journey was trying to figure out why and how and how does it work. Um, really what I wanted to know was how do I help him? So that's kind of where I've put my analytical energies. Um, yes. You know, is into into that what can be done because honestly, I I don't actually know the answer to that question. That's right. That's right. So the question of like what was causing it in some ways is is much less relevant than what would help with it. For my son, um, and I think for my mental state, I think a lot of parents probably get some comfort from assessing what caused it and how to protect perhaps other children they may have. But for us, it was more about how do we help? You know, what you describe, once once you see he's on the, on the slide and he's safe, and then in your book you just start describing, you know, this sort of cascade of fury, anger, self-blame, you know, that just makes yeah. sense. It happens in, you know, less than a second inside your mind. Yeah. Um, and th- one of the things that really leapt out to me was this, this idea of just taking it so personally mm-hmm. that and feeling so hurt. How have you uh, learned to not do that? And is it something that comes up again for you? Or, you know, what, what's the story of how you learned to not take it personally? That, um, that sense of it's my fault, first of all. Um, I assumed, uh, it's actually hard to talk about um, because it was so painful. Um, I assumed I was to blame. I was a working mother. I had a nanny. 
I didn't hold Ben as, as much as I should have in my mind. These are all the things I used as ammunition against myself. Right. Um, I had never been around babies or kids much. Um, even as a teenager, I didn't babysit a whole lot. Um, I felt that I didn't know what I was doing. I felt utterly incompetent as a mother. So when Ben seemed to reject me, which is how I interpreted his autistic behaviors, I I knew it was because I had failed him. Mm. And um, it wasn't even like it was a belief. It was like a certainty inside of me that it was somehow my bad. And every time he did something that was autistic, I felt rage at both of us. I don't know if you have an example of a time when that I happened. I do. I have I'd a love great to hear example, about that. actually. Um, ben had a behavior of, uh, it seemed unconscious. I found out later it wasn't, but it, of knocking things off of counters, tables, whatever he was walking by, he would just casually knock it on the floor. Um, and it made me crazy. Yes. You... I mean, I wanted to throttle him. And I say that in humility because... I'm talking about my child, but I felt a rage in me that was, um, you know, like from my toes. So he would say, be walking by the kitchen island, and he'd, there'd be a piece of paper, and he would just knock it on the floor. And, um, you know, on a good day, I would feel the frustration and just go over and pick the paper up. On a bad day, I would, you know, go into that zone of, like, mommy turned exorcist, you know, like, Benjamin, <laughs> you know, that kind of what I call my meanie voice, you know. Um, and sometimes he would notice me saying it that way, and sometimes he just would keep walking. That was really, and I don't know why it bothered me so much. There was something about, it seemed so, honestly, it seemed so messed up. It seemed so weird. Like, Normal people don't do that. You don't walk by and knock things over and then just keep walking. And I think it was the abnormality of it that frightened me. Huh. You know, um, even before the autism diagnosis, I, I would see these behaviors. I knew they were signs that he was not well in some way. And again, it was my fault. And so the fear would rise up in me. And I think... For me, as a mother, when I get afraid, I, I get angry. Like, that's just how my fear manifests. Um, and I don't know why that is. I do it with my husband, too. But, you know, like, so the fear would come up in me, and I would just get, like, enraged. And um, and then I would hate myself, actually, for being angry, well, that's what after the diagnosis. That's what it seems to me is it's such a double-edged sword. On the one hand... The fear makes sense, and the anger makes sense as the person who has to pick it up. It seems so willful, um, and yet it's such an immediate, you know, turns around on yourself. We're like, oh, my God, if I thought I was a bad mother yeah. before, now I really feel terrible. Right. You know, I just want to say it out loud for any parents who might be listening is that, and this, again, is very hard to say, but um, there were moments when I really hated Ben, my son, I really hated him, and um, that's a terrible experience to have, 
But I just felt so powerless and frightened, like all the time, you know, most of the time in light of this. Like this was not my picture of what, you know, my life was going to be. I, my, I have a wonderful husband. I always thought, wow, we're going to have such cool kids. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're, we're like neat people. We're going to have neat kids. And this really wasn't it. Um, and so it was like, it was just so scary to me. I didn't know. I felt incompetent as a mother anyway because of my lack of experience with children. And then I had this child with autism. I didn't know any idea what was going on most of the time. So I think that um, feeling actual hatred because I felt so frustrated and then hating myself for hating him was a vicious cycle. And um, it was... It left me very traumatized, and it, it uh, I really needed help. I mean, thank God, I thank God every day I found it, but I really, it is a very tough road, very tough road. I feel such respect for your courage in naming that. It feels so hard, and I think, you know, I don't know, I can't make a gross generalization, but I think that probably so many mothers feel that, even if it's just for one second, and then they punish themselves after afterward for years. Such a terrible feeling. But I know you're not alone, Susan. And I also, I'm hearing, and I actually kind of want to start hearing about it now. It sounds like something really changed, like you needed help and you got it. So what did you do? What has helped things change so much? Right. Well, there have been um, two things that have been really um, game changers for us. And, you know... Um, Ben was diagnosed when he was five, which a lot of people say is, like, really old um, to be diagnosed. These days it is because kids are getting diagnosed, you know, as toddlers much more frequently. But we were basically given a few suggestions, um, you know, the gluten-free, casein-free diet and play therapy and, um, and ABA, um, applied behavioral analysis. And... So I looked at those options, and I was very interested in things that were um, kind of healing naturally. And so we tried doing what's called the biomedical interventions, which is diet, um, getting rid of toxins from the body that might be fogging up the brain, stuff like that. And we did that for a year, and we saw nominal improvement. So there was like a tiny bit less of fogginess about Ben. I mean, Ben was a child who would ask the same question 35 times in a row, and you give him the same answer 35 times in a row. And, I mean, it was like bizarre. You know, um, it's actually brilliant because he creates a sense of certainty for himself, as we learn later, but at the time it just seemed just, again, messed up alien child, you know. Um, I hope that's not offensive to people listening. That's just how it no, felt. No, that's how it felt. And and 35 yeah. times. I mean, if I try to wrap my, you know, three times, like working with someone with dementia, say, that can really right. push you to the edge. So 35 times is almost inconceivable. And it was literally that many. It, I'm not even exaggerating. Um, so that got like a smidgen better, but really not much. And then we heard about a program called the Sunrise Program, S-O-N-R-I-S-E, um, which was a form of play therapy that was child-centered and home-based. And I was desperate. And I had been told so many times that 
autism was chronic and not treatable and that I shouldn't have false hope, that I should be realistic and um, look at managed care. And I didn't want to hear that. And I, I looked at the Sunrise program and they talked about treatment and recovery. Well, I found hope again. And um, so we decided to do that, and I went, and they, they have an institute you can go to in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts, and you go without your child for a week, um, and you learn this program, and then you come home, and you set up the program in your home, and they train you how to find volunteers or au pairs or whatever, and you set up a team, and you work with your child in their environment at home. And uh, Sunrise does not try and teach skills the way ABA does, it works on motivating the child to want to relate to others. Can you explain what you mean by that? I'm not a Sunrise-trained teacher, so I'll have to just um, advise people also to go to the website, but I can tell you my understanding and what we did is that you have a distraction-free environment that you set up, a little playroom, and you have very few things in there because autistic children, the premise is that their brains are overwhelmed. And there's only one person that goes in with a child at a time, and you might spend anywhere from half an hour to three hours in there with the child, in our case with Ben, and you join them. You don't try and make them stop, for example, spinning plates. You sit down and you spin the plate with them, or you spin your own plate, actually. So you're not trying to get them to notice you at all. You're just sharing the space, and you're being with them in a very non-threatening, non-directive, and very non-judgmental manner. So, so for example, if Ben was walking around the room knocking things down, instead of freaking out and getting into that whole painful state that I described earlier, I would start knocking things over. <laughs> and it helped me to understand a little bit what was going on for him. What did you understand about that? Well... The knocking things over, honestly, I never did. But there was one thing I'll tell you. Ben had, um, they called them isms, you know, repetitive behaviors. So one of Ben's isms was tearing paper. And he would tear paper for hours, literally hours, into little bits. So I would join him, and he would have his pile of paper, and I would have mine. And what I found through sitting for hours tearing paper is that, first of all, paper what we were using anyway, like recycled printer paper, has two sheets pressed together. And there's a grain. So if you tear it one way, it's different than if you tear it another way. And there's a particular sound when you tear paper that's quite soothing. And so it was kind of like a Zen experience. Um, And it was really actually an experience of communion with him. And I did this, you know, for a while, and one day, Ben and I were in there, and you always want to be in a position where you can see them in case they give you eye contact, and then you can celebrate it. So all of a sudden, for the first time, Ben notices me, and he looked at what I was doing, and he did the world's biggest double take, and he grinned. And I grinned. And it was a moment of connection. You know, like one of the first times ever in my life with my son. And then what happened was over the next few weeks, Ben would notice me 
And he said to me, you do yours and I do mine. And um, then had very little language that we could understand. It was garbled terribly. Even I, as his mother, could only understand or make out about a third of it. But I tell you, I understood it when he said that. And, um, and then that connection, we nurtured it. Every time he would connect, I would say, Ben, that was great. And then he'd turn around and go walk away and go back to whatever ism he was doing. But we were having these, you know, these fleeting moments of connection. And then gradually over the weeks and the months and then the years, that evolved into really relating. Susan, that story is so moving uh, for several reasons, but two I want to just name. The first is that, um, you know, I've sat on the floor and built Legos with my child for hours on end. (laughs) And um, really at times wrestled with feeling so bored. And at times it's incredibly fun, which is usually when we're connecting with each other and we're building something together and there's laughter and play. But if I'm just kind of parallel playing with him, I've wrestled and I've found that, um, so listening to you, part of what touches me so much about your story is, is how much you surrender your own agenda. Because I feel like, especially for, you know, I probably for every woman, I can't, I can't say, but it's so the challenge between letting go all the things that you want to do and get done in order to just just be with your child and enter their world is very, very difficult for parents. So this story is very beautiful to me about how you managed to do that and how much it paid off. Well, Anne, I remember when I heard about Sunrise and I saw these mothers and fathers doing this and I thought, I could never do that. I don't even want to do that. That's like, I would rather go to the dentist three times a week for the rest of my life than do that. <laughs> it felt like I would be bored, irritated. And I think one of the things um, that was so important was the support that I received um, and, and the community that is available to families on the spectrum and connecting with that community. And also a lot of self-acceptance. I didn't go in the playroom as much as I could have. I hired people. I went in uh, you know, hours a week. I, and other people go in and they spend hours and hours and hours a week. And I beat myself up about that. I really always believed, again, that what I was doing was uh, absolutely insufficient. But what I also believed was that we didn't have a guarantee that Ben would get better, but I wanted to be able to look back and see that I had given what I could give. And you know what? It was enough. It was enough because I gave what I could give, which was genuine. That I felt like if I didn't have that, I might go mentally ill, literally, with guilt because I have that in my nature. So it wasn't. I, I did feel like um, I was doing what I could do, and and you know we're blessed. Ben has emerged. He is functioning. He's in school. He's. He's written four children's books, and he has a best friend. And, you know, we have a lot of other issues we're dealing with now around um, energy issues and some attention deficit issues. But the autism is really gone. Um, But um, even if it hadn't gone away, even if Ben hadn't recovered, 
I think I needed to do what I could, whether it was Sunrise or the biomedical or ABA or whatever. I think I just needed to know that I had tried something to help him, you know, that I had done what felt right to me and my husband to try, and then I could live with the outcome and I have peace. Before we did this interview, when I was preparing for it, I'd heard you give a talk. So I knew that you used language like emerging from the spectrum and that you considered him to not have autism anymore. And I have to tell you that I was very nervous about doing this interview because I thought, Mm. what if I give a message to so many parents out there who suffer so intensely that some people's autism is curable and if your child wasn't, then what's wrong with you? That was my great anxiety because that would be the last message I would ever want to give. And, yeah. um, you know, and I'm, I'm trained as a medical doctor, so, of course, I'm trained to think of our autism as a neurological condition that starts in the womb and that, you know, isn't curable, blah, blah, blah. That's sort of mm-hmm. the current biomedical thinking. And so I'm just kind of just wanting to be really transparent with you about that anxiety. And I'm curious. I mean, you're such an honest and thoughtful person. How do you... Do you feel anxious about that too? About I mean, I understand you want to give people hope, but do you feel, how, how do you hold that inside yourself? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I guess I feel so deeply that, um, that every child deserves a chance and that I sort of have to, worry a little bit less about disappointment. I mean, I really, on the part of the parents, that I'm concerned about the great hope for the entire family to make progress. So what I want to say is that this is one way to approach this. We've had a very positive outcome. Many people said, don't have false hope. You're setting yourself up. You know, and I was scared of failing, frankly. I still have days when I'm afraid that I'm not doing enough for Ben and I'm going to be a failure to him actually getting further. Um, but, you know, and Ben, <laughs> he doesn't present with autism anymore. And so to say, you know, I'm not going to say that because some parents might feel guilty that they're not doing as much. Um, I don't want to keep that from parents who might want to do something. I get it. The message you really want to give hope. And and I also want to tell every parent that you don't have to be more than who you are. I mean, I feel like that's a critical message. The love of a parent with their child, it goes a distance. You know, it's really powerful. And the children want that more than anything, I believe. And when they start to get that in a way that's not coercive and pushing and trying to make them do things that they're not comfortable doing, and they open up to that love, um, I think it's transformative for them. I feel like that's helpful to me, Susan. I don't I don't have a child on the spectrum, but I feel like um, so often I can parent from a place of agenda. Mm-hmm. And I don't just sort of 
let go of that and just enjoy the moment. And I feel like in some ways that's what all kids bring is that chance to um, really be, you know, really, it's, it is Zen like, you just really enjoy this moment and forget all the stuff that has to be done. Also, I learned to forgive myself when I was feeling self centered feelings. Like, I don't want to be here. I'd rather be shopping. I'd rather be on the phone, you know, and say, like, I'm so that's that's the space I'm in right now. And you know what? I'm not going to judge myself about that either. That's okay. I'm still here doing the best that I can. So, in a way, one of the gifts to you of parenting, Ben, is that as you became more accepting of him, it sounds like you became more accepting of yourself. Oh, positively. Susan, I want to thank you so much for being my guest uh, today on Safe Space Radio and your courage to be so honest with me. I've been talking today to Susan Levin, and if you would like to learn more about her work or her perspective, Susan has a coaching practice in New York, but she works with people all over. And the number for that practice is 845-371-2751. So again, if you want to contact Susan Levin, it's 845 371 2751. If you're curious about the Sunrise program that meant so much to her family, they can be found at son-rise.org. And lastly, I just want to remind you that Susan's book is coming out this fall, and that will be called Discovering Benjamin, A Family's Journey Out of Autism. If you did not get a chance to hear this whole interview and you would like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe to get a weekly email with that week's show. You can also listen to any of our prior shows, download them onto your smartphone for your morning commute. You can write us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. You can also download us from iTunes and like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Russell for being our consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the intro music. Coming up next is Speak Freely.